The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. First of all, our first part is on Israel today, new beginnings. We're going to take a journey to Israel to notice a little bit about what's been taking place there. Now, you know, one of the places I like to visit is New York, and especially for the lady in the harbour there, because millions of people have come from other shores to the United States of America for freedom, for freedom and a new beginning. And that's what that lady's all about, bringing the refugees from other places down through the last two or three hundred years, in fact. And that's what's made the United States of America great by welcoming people from many places, many people who have experienced hardship elsewhere down through the years. I also like to come here to Germany, to Berlin. First time I came here, it was rather eerie because there was the Cold War going on that time and Germany was divided by this wall. It was rather eerie coming in in the middle of the night with these guards with their their dogs and so on to make sure people didn't get in or get out of this place. But of course the wall came tumbling down, or parts of it, back in the late 1980s. And people found freedom and a new beginning because that wall came tumbling down. I guess for many people, the story of Israel is all about freedom and a new beginning. The state of Israel, born in 1948, there they formed their own country for many years. In 1948, after they had gained their their uh, their own country, there was a war the very next day when the surrounding Arab nations made war against this new state of Israel. And amazingly, the Israelis defeated the surrounding Arab nations, just a fledgling young nation at the time. Then in 1956, the surrounding Arab nations struck again and again, the Israelis defeated them in that war. In 1967, it was on again, and you've heard of the Six-Day War. And uh, Israel again defeated the surrounding nations. In 1973, there was a third war known as the Yom Kippur War because it was fought or it began on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, a a sacred uh, holiday for the Israeli people. It comes from Bible times. And Israel nearly went under on that occasion, but they rallied and were able to defeat the the, uh, Arab nations again. Now, Today, of course, Israel has been transformed in a tremendous way when you visit this place. And people come here from all over the world for freedom and a new beginning, Jewish people mainly, of course. And many people, as they've looked at what has taken place, especially in the last 50 or 60 years now, they have wondered and thought, many people, is this a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? In fact, many people, many Christians today, believe it is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. In fact, you know, American many Christians pray for peace in Jerusalem because they feel that the Bible says that we should support Israel today. So they pray for peace in Jerusalem. That's a good thing to pray for peace in Jerusalem. But American foreign policy is actually based 
on what many Christians think in the United States of America. I was watching national television one night and uh, it was a two-hour two hour program on what the world thinks of the United States of America. And uh, on that program appeared Bob Carr, the Premier of our own state a few years ago here. And Bob Carr was being interviewed and he said, now listen, the whole reason the United States supports Israel and doesn't really support the Palestinians and so on too much is because of the belief of Protestants in the United States of America who believe Israel is God's people today and so we should support them. That was a fascinating thing to hear from Bob Carr. He's well read, as you know, that gentleman, he's quite right. That's what drives largely American foreign policy in the Middle East because of the many Christians who believe this in that country. So what's the story on this? What does the book of Revelation have to say about all this? Does it have anything to say about it? Well, yes, the book of Revelation does tell talk about Israel. It's actually mentioned once by name in the book of Revelation, and we'll look at that in just a moment. So we're going to see in this afternoon's program, we're going to discover Israel in the end times. We're in for some surprises in actual fact as we move into this program this afternoon. So let's begin by going back to those four horsemen of the apocalypse as we begin this afternoon. As we go through this program, you are going to discover that God is committed to freedom and a new beginning for every one of us on planet Earth. For freedom, in fact, we must make a stand, as we're going to see this evening or this afternoon. In fact, for freedom, God calls us to take a stand. And we'll notice that as we go through this program. In Revelation chapter 6, we noticed Friday night and then again yesterday that the seven seals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are the focus of Revelation chapter 6. The whole chapter is given to that. And then we pick up the last seal in chapter 8, verse 1. In between chapter 6 and chapter 8, of course, is number 7, chapter 7. And we encounter something interesting. But before we go to chapter 7, I want you to notice in the sixth seal, as we saw the other uh, yesterday now, John sees the climactic end time events of planet Earth in the sixth seal. We saw that. The signs in the sun, the moon, and so on, leading to the great day when Jesus comes. Now, notice what John said, saw, and I want you to notice a significant question at the very end. Then the sky receded. It rolled back like a scroll when it's rolled up, he said, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, he said, the the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand. Did you see that cryptic question right there in yellow? Who can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb on that day? The day when Jesus comes. That's the question. Who can stand on that day? A very important question which actually is answered in the next chapter because originally in the Bible there were no chapter divisions. 
We put them in later on so we could find the places easy. But originally it just ran on. There was no division between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Just keep reading. And that question is answered what follows. And here we have what follows. Who can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb on that day? John now sees at the beginning of chapter 7, four angels pushing back the winds from beating up this planet. Notice what he says. I saw another angel. I'm glad the book of Revelation is full of angels. There's an urgency, my friends, with heaven concerning planet Earth at this time. That's why angels are going in every direction. This is no ordinary time in the end of time. I saw another angel. He said he ascended from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom, he says, it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, do not hurt the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, he said. What an interesting picture here. And then he notices how many people are sealed. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now you're wondering, what's all that about? Well, let's unpack some of it. We can't unpack it all this afternoon, but we're sure going to by the time we finish this series. John hears that question. Who can stand before the throne of God of the Lamb? When Jesus returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who can stand before God? Answer, he says, or he hears, he hears the fact that it's 144,000 Israelites, he's told. These are the ones who can stand, and these people also have God's end time seal or mark in their forehead. Now, as I said, we're going to understand these things, and there's mighty good news in the whole lot. But we're going to just take one part of it this afternoon. Who are these Israelites that John sees? These are the ones, by the way, he says, who are saved when Jesus returns. These are the ones who can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb. Who are they? The 144,000 Israelites. So we better understand this business about the Israelites. Now, I can almost hear many of us asking a very important question. Will only Israelites be saved when Jesus returns? That's a good question. I'm sure, unless we were sleeping, that question was in our mind right then. So will only Israelites be saved? Who can stand? We better unpack this a little more. Now, when we go to the book of Revelation, we discover that it is full of many symbols, as we said the other day. Many symbols, and the Bible is the interpreter of those symbols. You don't have to have a science degree or a theological degree or a a history degree to understand the Bible. You just have to have an open mind and an open heart and a willingness to search this book because it interprets itself. This is the beauty of this book. That's why it's called The Words of Life. Now, you, for example, understand we saw the other day that the lamb is mentioned 28 times in the book of Revelation. Now, you and I would have no clue about what that was talking about unless we read a little bit elsewhere in this book and discovered that the lambs point to Jesus. The only reason why we know that is because else other parts in the Bible explain that. 
people may have pointed out to us, but they got it from here, you see. So the Bible interprets itself. The lamb points to Jesus, the one who died. So now what about Israel? Does that mean people with the right sort of nose or the right sort of blood, the right genes, people who are Israelites? What is that getting at here? How do we understand this? Well, what is an Israelite? When we go to the Bible, we learn some amazing things about Israel. We want to go, first of all, to the Apostle Paul, a man who was a very Jewish man. He talked about his pedigree in the book of Philippians when he was writing to the people in Philippi in Greece. Notice what Paul had to say about what a real Israelite is all about. He's writing to his friends in Rome here, and he says these words found in the book of Romans. He says, he is not a Jew. That's an Israelite who is one outwardly, got the right sort of nose or something. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Now, circumcision was what the Jews indicated. This is what makes us Jewish. They circumcised the males. He says, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, something physical. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision, he says, is that of the heart, the mind, the character and so on. In the spirit, by the spirit of God, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but it is from God. So Paul makes it very plain that a true Jewish person is not one just because he's born a Jew, but he's one from the inside. That's what makes a Jew a Jew, according to the Apostle Paul. And he should know because he was a Jew and he was a great man of God. So being an Israelite, Paul says, it concerns the heart of the person, the life of the person. Now, we learn something interesting. Many people say, and this is why many people say, well, we must support Israel because they're called the children of God in the Bible. Well, they are called the children of God. But I want us to notice something interesting that Paul also says. Notice what he says here. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Just because a person is born a Jew, says Paul, doesn't make them the children. Yet many of them were the really the children of God, but not all of them, according to Paul, just because they are of the flesh. That is, from a human perspective. They are the seed of Abraham. The children, he says, of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So just because a person is born a Jew doesn't make them a child of God in that right, that sense that Paul's talking about. Very interesting statement here. In fact, Paul wrote to his friends in Galatia in Turkey, and this is what he had to say. Now to Abraham and his seed, you will notice he says singular seed here, were the promises made. The promises made to Abraham were made to Abraham and his seed. And then he makes a point of this. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one particular seed, one particular offspring. And to your seed, he says, who is who? Christ. The seed of Abraham was not many. He says it was one person in particular. That is Christ, seed, singular. Now, Christ is the seed of Abraham, according to Paul. 
He is the seed. And that's why he goes on to say these words. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because you see, if we belong to Christ and he is the seed of Abraham and because we belong to him, then we belong to Abraham because we're in him. That's the way the apostle Paul puts it. So a person can be a Jew if he's in Christ, says Paul. So in Christ, we are Israelites. That's pretty good news for you and I this afternoon, because I don't think too many of us probably are born Jewish people. We come from different parts of the planet, yet we can be a Jew and we can be ready to meet Jesus, according to Paul. Because who will be saved? The Israelites. We're learning something interesting from the Bible here. In fact, Paul makes this statement in the same passage. He says, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Now, Paul's not blind. He knows a Jew from a a Gentile or a Greek. He knows a slave man and a free man. What he's saying is we are all equal. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no distinctions in Christ Jesus, he says. We are one. What a great thing that is. Imagine a world if we took that seriously. People accepted Christ. What a different world this world would be. We would be one people, he says. Now he writes to his friends in the city of Ephesus. And I want you to notice he makes this very plain as we move on. Therefore, he writes to them, remember that you, once Gentiles, he says, in the flesh, you were born non-Jewish people, he says, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The Jews called the Gentiles uncircumcised. The circumcised called the Gentiles uncircumcised, he says. He says, we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of Israel once, he says, and having no hope and without God in the world. That's what you were like, says Paul to these people in Ephesus. But, and buts are very important words in the Bible, but now in Christ Jesus, because you've accepted Christ Jesus, he says, you who once were far away, you were aliens from Israel, have been brought, he says, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, who has made both, that's Jew and non-Jew, one in Christ. He has made both so as to create in himself one new man from the two, one new people, thus making peace, he says. Now, therefore, he sums it up. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're not a foreigner, but you are fellow citizens. Now, listen, if I go to your country, Bob, where you came from, the United States, and I become a citizen, what am I called? I'm called a Yank, aren't I? Right? I'm a fellow citizen of that country, you see. So that's what we are now. We are fellow citizens with the saints, God's people, and members of the household of God. And he uses a very Israeli term here, which is for Israel, the household of God. So Paul makes it very plain that all of us, 
if we accept Christ, can actually be Israelites. And therefore, we can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb. We can be part of what he talked, John talked about in Revelation. All right, let's move on. Now, so in Christ, a person is a true Israelite, is an Israelite. So Gentiles can become Israelites in Jesus Christ because he is the seed of Abraham. So true Israel today, in fact, for for the Bible, is its true Christians, people who truly are followers of Jesus Christ. That's what an Israelite is today. How do you become an Israelite? How does one become one? Well, the Bible makes that plain, and Paul is the one who points that out. As he continues writing to his friends in Galatia, notice what he says. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We become the children of God, the sons of God, or the children of God, as it's put there. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, he says, you have put on Christ. And if we put on Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, we become the seed of Abraham or Israelites. And if you are Christ, he says, there he goes. If you are Christ, then he says you are Abraham's seed. That means Israelites and heirs according to the promises God made to Father Abraham. Then he points out this when he's writing to his Corinthian friends by one spirit. We were all baptized into that one body, which we mentioned earlier, whether Jews or Greeks or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, have all been made to drink into one spirit. Here is the amazing teaching of the New Testament. How do we become Israelites? We become Israelites through the baptism of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, baptism of faith in Jesus Christ is mentioned some 80 times in the Bible. In other words, this is no minor topic. That's why we can see it's important here. How do you become an Israelite? How do we stand before the throne of God and the Lamb? How do we stand on that final day when the curtain's closing? We be an Israelite through baptism mentioned 80 times in the Bible. So it's very vital. It's a vital topic. Now, the meaning of baptism helps us understand why it is so vital. Notice there are three reasons or three meanings for baptism. First of all, it is this, death to our old sinful way of living. We knew we were going in the wrong direction, but we've had a change from the inside out. Death to our sinful living and freedom from our old destructive lifestyle. I like the way Paul puts it when he writes to his friends in Rome. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We joined him as it were in his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism, he says, into death. Knowing this, that our old man, our old way of living was crucified, finished with him that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Have you noticed that sometimes in our, if, if you're like me, there have been times when you have been a slave to things that we know are wrong, but we couldn't break free. I've had that experience, but I discovered this truth. In Jesus, we are no longer slaves, like Paul says, to sin, because the old life is done away with by faith in Jesus' death, the Bible teaches us. So this is the first meaning, 
death to our old living, freedom from the old way of life. Second, a new life, freedom to live a powerful, purpose-filled life. And I'm sure that's what we all want. Life with a meaning, life with purpose. And this is part of the meaning of baptism. Paul continues on the same letter to his writing as he continues. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, he says, even so, we also, as by our faith in him, we should walk in newness of life. We have a new way of living now. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death in baptism, certainly, he says, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He came forth with power like we saw last night in that film. The resurrection to a new life. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Christ, with him. I have been crucified. This is the way Paul puts those two things. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's the new life now. Jesus in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All right. So here's the second great meaning. I have a new life by my faith, the baptism of faith in Jesus' death and now his resurrection. I join him in a new life. He lives in me. There's one more thing baptism means. It means I belong. I'm a child of God. I'm not a nobody. I belong to somebody. He says, you are all sons. That means children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, sometimes when we're kids, we, we boast about, I got, this is my dad and he does this and, and so on and so forth. Listen, a person who comes to Jesus, he becomes a child of the king of the universe. It doesn't get better than that. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we become the children of God because he is the son of God. And in him, we are the children of God, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, he says, according to the good pleasure of his will. There's something special about adoption, isn't there? You know, most of us, Mum and dad just happened to have us. You know, it wasn't planned. <laughs> but adoption, you handpick them, don't you? This is a handpicked child. We were chosen. God handpicks all of us. He loves all of us. And he adopts us as his children, so to speak. Now, I'm fascinated. I love visiting Gallipoli. Some of you, have, I'm sure, have been there. There's something special about this place, I guess, because of our history down under here and uh, of the Anzacs and so on, of course. But it was on these shores, 1915, that those young men arrived at this place by boat and they moved up this beaches. They were confronted with some enormous hills to get their way up like the Great Pyramid here, they call it. And it was a daunting task to come out of the sea and move up to that where the, the Turks were waiting. And the Turks actually... Were nearly got beaten at one stage there, but they are, they were managed to just get enough reinforcements up and really that's, that, that was the, the, the way the, the war, that part of the war continued for the rest of the time they were on Gallipoli. If they hadn't have got those troops up 
those reinforcements that would have all been over for the Turks. But here were these aliens, these Aussies and Kiwis and British soldiers, aliens in a foreign land invading this land in actual fact, really, when you think about it. Ataturk and his soldiers stopped them in their advance. And it's quite uh, mind-boggling and and almost awe-inspiring to be up there and to look at these trenches and to realise that young men in the prime of their life and both sides fought each other for just a few yards of dirt. It's quite a tragic thing when you think about what took place up here. Brave young men giving their life for their countries on both sides, in fact. But we're thinking of the, of the Anzacs. Many a young man died up here, and of course you can visit the graves, and you walk along and you see 20 years of age, 18 years of age. It's tragic to see all this. Many young men, and when you go around Australia, as you know, every town has a memorial and someone, some young man from this country, from that, con- that town, died in that great war. All over the country, young men from Australia and, of course, New Zealand. Their name lives forever. And I'm glad we think about Anzac Day because, well, we should for young men, women who gave their life for our own country. But I also like coming here to Anzac Cove. It's a almost sacred ground for the, for the Australians and New Zealanders. And I like what's here at Anzac Cove. Ataturk had a quite a big heart for the Australians and the New Zealanders and, and what they did up here. And he put up a memorial up here that you can see on the shores of Gallipoli here. Now, I'll put it up in big print so we can read it. I want you to notice what it says. He's talking to the mothers of the sons who have been killed. He says, those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives are now living in the soil of a friendly country, Turkey. Therefore, he says, rest in peace. There is no difference, he says, between the Johnnies, that's the British and the Australians and the New Zealanders, and the Mermats, the Turks. There's no difference as far as we're concerned, says Ataturk, to us where they lie side by side because there are the bodies, the tombs, the, the graves of the Turks, and there are the tombs of the Aussies side by side up there. There's no difference to us where they lie side by side in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, he says, wipe away your tears. And I want you to notice what he says next. Your sons are now living in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. That is very gracious, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, as far as the Turks were concerned, these were invaders. These were aliens who came to their shores. And yet, through death, says Ataturk, these aliens, as far as we're concerned, they have become our sons when they died. What a beautiful thing. But as I thought about that up there on Anzac Cove, I thought, ah, something far greater has happened as far as you and I are concerned, and that is this. That we who were the enemies of God, not because God was an enemy to us, but we ran from God. We hated God. We didn't want anything to do with God. And many people don't even today in this country of ours. But enemies, we become children of God through Christ's death and his resurrection. What a beautiful picture we have there as we think of those boys who died on the shores there in Gallipoli. So when you see a baptism, You go to a funeral 
You go to a resurrection and you go to an adoption ceremony. Somebody's dying, their old life is going, you see. Somebody's coming to a new life because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And somebody is becoming part of the very family of God. They're becoming a child of God in that sense. Now, the biblical method of baptism is very interesting. I want you to notice how the Bible describes baptism. I've heard of many baptisms, by the way. Uh, I've heard of baptism by over the telephone. That'd be interesting. I guess that's a dry cleaning method, you know, over the phone. I've heard of baptism by rose petals. I guess that's sweet, you know. Baptism by salt. I guess that's to preserve people, you know. Baptism by immersion. Baptism by infusion or sprinkling. Many different ideas that people have of baptism. But according to the Bible, there's only one method of baptism. And there's a good reason for that because the biblical method fits the meaning of baptism as we're going to see. So let's have a look at the biblical method of baptism now that we know its meaning. The Bible says there's only one baptism that we have in Scripture, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Not many different types. And I guess the best thing would be to say, well, how was Jesus baptized? Because obviously that's the way baptism really is. So when we go to the life of Jesus, we discover how he was baptized. It came to pass, says the Bible, in Mark's writings, in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Then it says when he'd finished being baptized, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So as you read those texts and you read the, the, what the Bible says clearly, you can see what happens. When we have baptism, you go into water. You don't stand on the edge of the bank or something and you come up out of water. So for Bible baptism, people go into the water and they come up out of the water. This is also brought to light in a story in the book of Acts. There was an Ethiopian. In fact, he was the treasurer of a country down there in Africa. And he had come from the Jewish, from from Jerusalem. He was traveling back and he was reading part of the Bible. He was reading the book of Isaiah, which we saw as part of the Dead Sea Scroll Collection, Two. Two complete scrolls almost of Isaiah's writings in the Dead Sea Scroll. He's reading the 53rd chapter, which talks about the Lamb of God who would die. And he has no clue what he's reading about. As he's reading this passage in Isaiah 53, which says he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. He's wondering what's going on. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, a follower of Jesus, he impressed him. He said, see that man in that chariot? You go up to him and you talk to him and explain to him what he's reading. So Philip went up to the chariot as it's going along. Must have been going fairly slow because he comes up to it. And he says, do you know what you're reading? He says, no, how can I? I haven't got a clue. Someone must help explain me. Jump up on my chariot. And so Philip gets a ride on the chariot and explaining to him about Jesus from the book of Isaiah. And uh, so they journeyed along. Well, they came to some water and after the Ethiopian man understood about baptism and wanted to connect with Jesus, wanted to be part of Christ and give his life to him, he saw the water and he said, so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, there it is again, you see. So in biblical baptism, the one baptizing is in the water 
and especially the one being baptized goes into the water. So there it is again. We go into water and we come up out of water very clearly here. In fact, the word baptism that's in the Greek language, this word means to immerse. It means to dip under, to plunge under. That's what the Greek word means. So if you're going to baptize your car, you couldn't get the hose out and give it a good spray. You'd have to baptize the car by driving it under the river and up the other side. And, of course, that wouldn't do a lot of good for your car, but that would be to baptize your car, you see. You can't sprinkle it with the hose. You must immerse it and dip it right under. That's why it says these words when John the Baptist is baptizing. Notice what it says. Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim. Why? Because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Now, if John was sprinkling people with a few drops of water, a bucket could have done thousands of people, a few drops. But he had to be where there was much water because he had to put people under the water and bring them up out of the water, you see. So much water is needed in biblical baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, not many different types. In fact, the father and son were arguing about this one day. The father said, listen, baptism means you sprinkle people, sprinkle people with a few drops of water. And the son said, no, dad, the Bible says you've got to bury people in, in, in water and, it's, and you put them right under the water. So they argued backwards and forwards over this. And finally, the father said, son, let's quit this. We can't argue about this anymore. We've got to do some work around here. So he said, now, son, let's go. So they take off to go do some work around the farm. And just before the boy got out of sight, the dad called him. He said, come back for a minute. Last night, the rooster died. I want you to bury him today. Make sure you bury him good. So that evening when they came in from doing all their work on the farm, the father was furious. And he got hold of his son. He said, I thought I told you to bury that rooster today. He said, I did, dad. I got a few grains of dirt and I sprinkled it on top of him. You told me this morning that's what burial is. And the father got the message, if you're going to bury someone, you've got to put them right under, like the old rooster needs to be buried. Put them right under. That's what burial means, and we're buried with Christ in baptism. Now, the biblical method fits the meaning. Notice with me as we see some people being baptized here. Here we are, and notice, when a person goes under, the old life is gone. They come up, the new life. That's what it symbolizes. The old life buried, finished as accepting Jesus by faith, and a new life of peace and joy. Here we are in Africa. We're burying them under the water, as it were, with Jesus, because they've accepted Jesus by faith. The old life is gone. Now the new life has come. The meaning and the method match beautifully together when you look at that. Now, I want to take you on a journey for a moment because baptism by immersion was practiced for centuries by Christians all around the world. Here we are in Ephesus. You can come here to Ephesus and you can visit the Church of Mary because you remember when Jesus was dying, he said to John, look after my mum. And John came here to Turkey, to Ephesus, and he brought Mary here. And so we have this Church of Mary. And it's an old one, it's, it's just ruins today. But you can see over here, on the right, there's a baptistry, about three feet deep with steps going down, where people used to baptize people by immersion. This church goes back to the 5th century AD. Just up the road, there is the Basilica of St. John. 
John, the disciple who looked after Mary. And here we have a baptistry in the form of a cross. You can see right in the middle here. And there are steps going down into that baptistry about three feet deep where they used to put people under the water. This church, this basilica goes back to about the 6th century BC as well. We can come over to Rome. And here we are in the, the church of St. John of Laterano which is called the Church of the Popes, because if you visit this church, you will see the various bishops of Rome on statues of them on the roof of this great cathedral. It used to be the great cathedral in Rome, then St. Peter's came along. But if you go into this church, you can go into this building here, this uh, octagonal building, and inside there is this circular baptistry about three feet deep. It's used today in the middle, they sprinkle uh, people with a few drops of water but it used to be filled with water once where they put people under the water you can see the steps going down into it again at the back here we come to the church of St Paul's outside the walls of the old walls of Rome this church has a beautiful baptistry marble everywhere and you can see the steps going down into this baptistry which they used to fill with water but again now they just use to sprinkle people in the middle there but around the top you can see in these letters, Baptizati in sumus in Christu Jesus, baptism into Jesus Christ. This is the baptistry of this great church that you can visit in Rome today. Let's go to Pisa where the leaning tower is leaning over there. This is actually the bell tower of this great church complex here. In the middle we have the cathedral itself, the church, but then if we just go to the other side, we come in another little building as part of the complex, and here is this octagonal baptistry, eight-sided baptistry about three feet deep, where they used to, where they used to put people under the water. I could take you to Jerash in, in Jordan, and many different places. You can go to Nazareth and you can see a baptistry just behind the great cathedral that's there today from ancient times, the 5th century, the 6th century, and this one was last used in the 12th century AD. Notice what Cardinal James Gibbon says. He's a leader in the Christian church. For several centuries, he says, after the establishment of Christianity, baptism was usually conferred by immersion. But he says, he says, since the 12th century, the practice of baptizing by infusion or sprinkling has prevailed in the church. As this, he says, as this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. Now, this is a sad thing, but the cardinal is being very honest. He's saying, listen, the Bible says we should baptize by immersion, and that's why we see all these baptistries, but it's a little bit fussy. It's a little bit more difficult and to you know, fill the tank up with water and so on and so forth. So we do it because it's less inconvenient. My friends, this afternoon, we must never, never go to a place where we do things that are contrary to this word just out of convenience. This book is like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It gives us direction in all areas of life. And this is one area that sadly Christians did away with. I mentioned the other day that there came things into the Christian church way, way back. And this was one of them where sadly this idea of baptism by immersion was swept aside for other ways to do things. And this is what John was talking about when he said blackness would come in. And why? Because the balances 
food would be very expensive, meaning the word of God would be scarce to get hold of and people would no longer be following the word of God. And here's one example. Now, let's think about baptism. How important is baptism? Is it really that big a deal? Yes, well, of course it is, according to the Bible and according to Jesus. Notice what Jesus said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He links it very clearly to his salvation when we know what we should do and we have the opportunity. He says it's very important that we be believe and are baptized. This is Jesus. He's commanding baptism here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, he says, baptizing them because it symbolizes death to the old and a new life in Jesus Christ. And then finally, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he said these words. Then Peter said to them, because people were convicted, he told them that they had crucified Christ and put him to death. And they were deeply convicted that they had done the wrong thing. So they said, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, he said, repent. Turn from your old ways, in other words, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, said Peter. So he linked it to the forgiveness and receiving the Holy Spirit. That is when people have the opportunity, and it's by faith. Now, baptism does not mean a person is perfect, not at all. Baptism it doesn't mean that. It doesn't, it's not like a graduation. In fact, it's like an initiation. It's the beginning of a journey. And it does bring freedom when we enter into it by faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism by immersion through faith in Jesus brings new spiritual power into our lives. You will remember that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him because, of course, he himself was acting in faith to the word of God. Baptism isn't magical. Just because a person gets wet, a duck could get wet. (laughs) That's not what the Bible's talking about. It's not a magical thing. It's about faith in Jesus. Notice the way Paul put it. In him, that is in Jesus, you were also circumcised. That's a sign of being an Israelite, we read earlier. So you became an Israelite, he's saying. You became an Israelite through baptism. With the circumcision without hands, he says. We haven't come to baptism yet, but you'll see it. By putting off the body of sins of the flesh by, he says, the circumcision of Christ. What's the circumcision of Christ? He then explains it. Buried with him in baptism. That's the circumcision of Christ. But how does it come? In whom also you also were raised with him, but he uses this word, through faith. We put our trust in him. That's when baptism has significance, when we have faith in the working or the power of God who raised Jesus him from the dead. Now, here are the steps to baptism as outlined in this book. Here are the way a person leads to becoming an Israelite, because this is what it's all about, you remember. Repent, says the Bible. That means a genuine sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. We mentioned that the other day. Uh, Repentance, turning away from that which we know to be wrong and going in a new direction. Notice the way Jesus said it, or Peter said Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized. We need repentance linked with baptism. Then there's a second one. The second one is to believe or to accept Jesus as the master or the Lord and savior of our life. Notice the way the Bible put it a moment ago. Let's look at it. Look, Jesus said, he who believes 
and is baptized. Belief goes with baptism, as we said. And finally, Jesus taught that we need to have some instruction. We need to learn the essentials of what it means to have biblical faith, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What are the essentials? Notice what Jesus said. Make disciples, that means followers, people who are like Christ, make disciples of all the nations, he said, baptizing them, but he linked to it, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So instruction in the ways of Jesus' commands and so on is part of preparing. And that's why the Bible doesn't teach infant baptism or the baptism of babies. You may can see that because babies, you see, they can't repent. They don't even understand anything about this when they're little infants. Uh, Little babies can't believe. They have no concept of these ideas at such a young age. And, of course, babies can't be taught, instructed in the way. This is very clearly from the Bible. Now, does that mean God doesn't love the little children? Of course he does. Jesus was the one who himself as a little baby of only about eight days old was dedicated in the temple when he went there, his parents took him. But dedication is not baptism. Jesus dedicated children. He took them in his arms and he prayed for them. He blessed the children. Jesus loved the children. In fact, Jesus said, unless we become like children, meaning we have trust in God like little kids do, we'll never be part of the kingdom of God. No, God loves the little children. But dedication and blessing them is not baptism. That's for people who can repent and believe and be taught. Now, our parents, and probably many of us here were christened at one stage. Our parents did the best for us. They, they under, that's what their understanding was. But once we know, of course, that's different, we need to do what the Lord tells us to do. So should I be rebaptized? This is a question that some people have. Should I ever get rebaptized? Well, yes and no is the answer to this question as we come to a close. Yes, if I haven't been baptized by immersion. So if I was sprinkled by my by my parents uh, taking me to the to the priest and I was sprinkled. Well, that's not baptism. That's not the biblical form. So I yes, I need to be baptized properly uh, according to the Bible. So yes, if I've been baptized, haven't been baptized by immersion. Yes, for some people who if they've raised the old man to life. What I mean by this is this. If I have followed Jesus and then I turn my back on Jesus and I go way out in do the things that I know are wrong and I live like that and I come back, I need to be rebaptized. Why? Because baptism is about putting the old man to to death and rising to a new life. And now somebody has coming out and back to God. And, of course, it's like anybody else. There's a third thing. Yes, if I discover significant new truth. This is another reason in the Bible for being rebaptized. Notice what Paul encountered when he went to Ephesus. Paul says, it says, he came to Ephesus and finding some disciples... He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he said to these people. So they said, we have not even so much as heard whether there was a Holy Spirit or is a Holy Spirit. We didn't understand about that, they said. He said to them, into what baptism were you baptized? And they said to him, John's baptism. Now, John's baptism was a good baptism. Jesus was baptized by John and he received the Holy Spirit. Then Paul said, he said to them, John indeed baptized you with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him, on Jesus, who would come after him. That is on Christ, Jesus himself. 
When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here's an example of people who, yes, they got baptized again because they understood significant new truth. The fourth one is no, when I sin, but I stay with Jesus. So if you make a mistake and you will make mistakes as a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean I have to get baptized every time. This was the question that Peter had. You may remember when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples, he was washing their feet and he came to Peter and Peter realized, wow, what's going on here? This is, this is God in human flesh washing my feet. He said, no way are you going to wash my feet, Jesus. That's just not going to happen. Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, I can't have, you can't be part of me. You can't, you, you can't be involved. You, you, you're not connected with me, he said. Then Peter said, well, Lord, wash me all over. Just wash me all over. And Jesus said, no, Peter, if you've had a bath, you just need your feet washed. <laughs> you may remember the story. In other words, yes, we may stumble and fall, and we will, but we don't have to get rebaptized. Only when we leave Christ and leave him behind and go out again, away from Christ, and like that, that's the only time. But no, there's a feet washing, according to what Jesus said here. In closing, I want to share with you a story of this young man. It really impressed me. I have a, a friend who runs programs like this, Mark Finley, and we worked together in Melbourne for some weeks, a few years ago, Mark told the story of this young man that you can see on the screen. He was living in Russia. Mark was the first person to run meetings of this sort of program that we're doing here in Hornsby in the former Kremlin building there. After the Cold War had finished and the Soviet Union had crumbled down, he went and preached right in the very heart where communism was planted for over 70 years, right in the Kremlin itself. And many, many thousands of people were coming along because they were hungry to hear about the things of life. And coming to these meetings was this family, but not the boy. He had cancer. He was terminally ill. And the longer things went on, the worse he got. Mark was visiting the family and visiting him one day in their home in, in Moscow there. And the young man said to him, Pastor Mark, he said, would you baptize me? I want to follow Jesus in that way. And Mark said, you're too sick to baptize. He, he was vomiting all the time, just, just so sick. He said, God understands your heart. He knows what you want to do, but you can't be baptized. I mean, we can't even take you out of the home. You're too sick. He said, no, Pastor Mark, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus in this way that he outlines in the Bible. Well, Mark was wondering what to do, and then he finally came up with a good idea. He said to the mother there, he said, do you have a bathtub? She says, we do. We do have a bathtub. He said, fill it up with water. So Mark took that young boy in his arms, still vomiting all over. He was so sick. Vomiting, he took him to the bathroom, laid him in the bathtub, and baptized him right there. And I look at the thought of that man, I thought, what a commitment to Jesus. Here's a young man. God would have understood, of course. There was a thief on the cross who couldn't get baptized, not because he didn't want to, but because he was nailed there, as we saw last evening. God understands the heart, but when we know what to do and we have the opportunity to do it, then we should do it. And here's a young man who gives us a great example of what it means to take a stand for Jesus Christ. For freedom, you see, we must take a stand. We must make a stand, a freedom from our old life, freedom to live a new life of power in Jesus by faith in his death and resurrection. There's no middle ground in this war as we're seeing. 
Those who are not with me, he says, are against me. There's no fence to sit on in this great cosmic war that we're unpacking here in this series of programs. We must take a stand for freedom. In fact, God invites us to take a stand. For freedom, God calls us to take this stand, and God is calling you and I to take a stand for him. This may be new to you, but let me tell you, my friend, there is nothing better in life than giving Jesus our whole life, a life of purpose and meaning and of hope for the future. And that's what baptism is all about, freedom from our old life, freedom to a new life of purpose in Jesus Christ because of our faith in him. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.